welcome to Legendary Africa, your African Myths and Legends podcast. Today on the show, I am dying. And I am freezing. Officially, I um, woke up this morning and just felt super dizzy, weak, nauseous, like the whole thing. So, um, jury's out on whether it's COVID, but... uh, I mean, I'm going for period. (laughs) yeah covid or menstruation who knows (laughs) or pregnancy hi mom (laughs) all three have similar symptoms speaking of pregnancy this is our father's day episode (laughs) that's a great way to get into it yes happy father's day or yesterday to all the fathers and father figures out there yeah i mean we hope that you got spoiled by your kids that you were reminded of how valuable you are and um, that uh, you just generally enjoyed the day i wanted to actually give a particular shout out to two types of people uh one single mothers who have to navigate the difficulties of father's day and you know what that might mean for their kids who could feel left out on that kind of occasion stuff like that imagine that's not easy and uh, you know well done to those moms who are struggling on with those things or not struggling i mean who knows conquering conquering Mm. and also to single dads uh Mm. you know never easy being a single parent i suppose um, and also, I feel as though society tends to have more confidence in single mothers than single fathers. Yeah, there's definitely, people definitely um, don't pay attention enough, I feel, to single fathers and actually how hard they have to work. Yeah, and you know, there's those misconceptions of how, oh, dads don't have natural nurturing instincts, blah, 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 they can't take care of kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's bullcrap. I mean, if you're a single dad, kudos to you, and I'm sure you're a fabulous parent and you're raising the next president of the world all right (laughs) so i have some good news Mm -hmm. we have recently acquired uh, listeners from another african country besides south africa yeah super excited to have listeners in kenya Uh, we're not exactly sure who you are but we're really happy that you're here and we're really hoping to uh, attract attention from other african countries as well yeah come through But besides that, I'm super grateful for our listeners in uh, the US, Australia, New Zealand, the UK, Canada, Germany, Ireland, Czechia, I hope I'm saying that right, (laughs) Uh, Sweden, Russia, Kenya, and Argentina. Russia. Cool. Uh, That's my brother-in-law. I actually know exactly who that is. (laughs) I mean, still valued. (laughs) He's he's just like the less than 1% that's coming up. Yeah. (laughs) I'm pretty sure we have all of one just now. <laughs> or not, I mean, who knows? <laughs> yeah, true, true. So, you got news? So, uh, for today's weather segment... Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have a photo here from our mother, <laughs> who sent us a very useful weather forecasting stone. That's, this is going on Instagram, I assume. Oh, yes, of course. But essentially, um, so apparently we need to hang up a stone... And if the stone is wet, then it's forecasting rain. <laughs> if it's uh, swinging, then it's windy. If you can't see the stone, then it's foggy. And if the stone is gone, well, there's a tornado. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I don't have a stone. But it's still cold. <laughs> <laughs> this will make more sense when you see the picture, I swear. Yeah, no, I'll definitely... <laughs> it's great to picture you see People it. are like, what the fuck and is she talking like, about? If you don't know the great stone, who even are you? Or maybe you're stoned. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> And, uh, oh, you have something else? Continue, continue. In other unrelated news, hedgehogs make sheep want to bonk each other. Oh, yeah. That's cool. (laughs) That's that's normal. 
So this is a story that my fiancé, who is Maasai, told me about um, a belief in Maasai culture that apparently if you see a hedgehog in your uh, sheep herd, or whatever you call a, a group of <laughs> sheep. Flock? A flock yeah. of sheep? A flock of sheep? A flock of birds. <laughs> Who knows? Anyway, if you see a hedgehog among your sheep, it's a good sign because it means that the sheep are going to get it on and you're going to have some great sheep offspring, little lambs. Do you suppose the hedgehog sort of give off some sort of aroma? Pheromones. That, you know, encourages... <laughs> Procreation? Yeah, sheep to, you know, get funky. I don't know. I mean, possibly. Or maybe it's just kind of like a support animal. <laughs> <laughs> they feel safer. Yeah. Knowing that that little prickly guy is down there doing his best. <laughs> <laughs> just encouraging. You know, shouting things like, yeah, you can do it. You're the ram. Oh, God. <laughs> it's just got more disturbing as you told it. So, unsure yet as to whether hedgehogs have this effect on other animals... So next time you're looking to spice things up in the bedroom, try bringing in a hedgehog. Bring in your kid's pet hedgehog. This has been your love segment. <laughs> also exciting, mm-hmm. I saw a Disney trailer for Hamilton on YouTube. A Disney trailer? Disney. Yeah, they're with Disney now. Or it's being oh. produced by Disney or something Disney like that. Disney owns Everything. Did you know Disney has National Geographic? I think it owns National it Geographic. It owns everything. Yeah, what the hell? <laughs> Disney owns you. <laughs> yeah, no, they do. They they own they own Walmart. <laughs> they... <laughs> it's, uh... Mickey has gone so commercial. Show. Sure. <laughs> I mean, do you know, Mickey is technically part of the Marvel Universe now. Oh, yeah, I know. Just, he, he is a king and everything. <laughs> just as Doctor Doom is part of the <laughs> Disney universe. He's a prince, okay? <laughs> so yeah, um, Hamilton with the original Broadway cast streaming on July 3rd. Don't miss it. I mean, obviously you're a Hamilton fan or else get out of my life. But, is it uh, only on like the Disney Channel or something? Or like, um, what's it called? Disney Plus? To be honest, it didn't actually say where it was streaming. <laughs> just streaming in your mind. It was just like... July 3. <laughs> You'll find us. You'll find us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's that thing called Google, I think. You mm. know, Disney assumes you've heard of it. <laughs> I mean, clearly you didn't use it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, super excited about that. Um, I'm pretty sure, you know, the 99.9% of the population that has never seen Hamilton and will <laughs> <laughs> probably never see it with the original cast is uh, excited. Imagine if they do, like, an animated Disney Channel uh, series. Oh, of Hamilton. <laughs> Hamilton. <laughs> and then they get like the original cast to voice act. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> For some reason, I imagine them drawing Hamilton with a really large nose. Yeah. Like an outlandishly large nose. Mm-hmm. I'm with you. <laughs> Not sure where that comes from. I don't know how they'd make that child friendly. You're with me. But the situation is fraught. You better be carefully taught or you're gonna get... Okay, but only in Donald Duck's voice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. I can't do it. I can't. <laughs> I know, maybe just Mickey Mouse's. I'm with you! <laughs> but the situation is fraught. You better be carefully taught. Are you gonna get shot? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> True fan over here, apparently. <laughs> so, um, what else is new with you? Oh, uh, you know, I started... It's again, it's gonna be about Handmaid's Tale, of course. You still can't I say, still can't say it. Handmaid's Tale. I'm just gonna say HMT from now on. <laughs> I started season three. Mm-hmm. And I could not be more shook. Like, I know I said I was shook at the last episode. Yeah. Uh-uh. <laughs> this is on a whole new level. I have to say, this show is totally on its own tier, just for the fact that it can consistently produce quality in every single episode. Mm-hmm. You know like how in other shows, there's always that one or two episodes in the season 
where you're like, ugh, that was lame. Yeah. But then with Handmaid's Tale, it's just every single one hits home. Yeah, I mean, there's never a dull moment in any of the episodes. Like, I can't say there's an episode where I was like, well, okay, that was kind of like a filler episode. They don't have those. (laughs) Every single episode has something that makes you just go, what the fuck just happened? So are you going to recap the finale of season two for me? Um, It's too much to recap, hey, but basically... Just give me the highlights. Okay, so basically, June's newborn baby managed to was taken out of um Gilead and into Canada. Nice. Um along with Emily, who is uh, do you know Emily? So she was previously off Gwen and then she was off Joseph or something like that. Something like that, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um she was sent to the colonies and brought she back. She is the guy who drove over a guardian with her car, <laughs> I think. Uh yeah, yeah. That was really fun. <laughs> the most iconic <laughs> she, moment. She drove over him, then she drove back over him. And then she sort of just sort of giggling hysterically. <laughs> it's just I, I imagine that scene in my head and then that um voice from Halo Reach just being like Kilimanjaro <laughs> Kill Trocity Overkill <laughs> Yeah. So she's managed to take the baby out into Canada and now she's gonna get get in contact with her wife and her own child. Mm-hmm. That was really hectic. But June stayed behind because she still wants to get her other daughter out, mm-hmm. Hannah. Um, so it's it's just a whole thing because Serena, who is the the wife who was in charge of her, she actually let June go and took and allowed her to take the baby to Canada. Yeah, that was quite a twist. Yeah, she realized that Gilead sucks. <laughs> took her long enough. Mm, she had to get beaten and got like a finger cut off before she realized that. But what actually persuaded her to do this whole Bible reading thing in the first place? Because I thought she was quite uh, down with the not reading thing. She was. So what happened was that so Nick, who is a guardian and like June's lover, kind of also the father of her newest baby, he was supposed to get married to this girl called Eden. And she uh, she was lonely because Nick didn't like her and she had an affair, blah, blah. She was killed. Oh, wow. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that happened. She was killed because she had an affair with another um, guardian. Oh, who found her out? Not I don't suppose Nick ratted her out, No, did he? well, he didn't want to, but she had run away. Oh, shit. And in order to protect the Waterford family and the baby and everything, he had to say, like, what do you suspect she did? Oh, damn. So she was um, convicted and murdered by drowning in a swimming pool with a ball and chain. Oh. Yeah, her and her lover. So um, June found a Bible belonging to Eden, and she had clearly read and written notes in it. Oh, shit. <laughs> so, and she showed it to Serena, and that kind of like that kind of made Serena think up about what was going on because Eden was a very supposed to be a very religious child. Yeah, and so it kind of struck her that all she was trying to do, all Eden was trying to do, was learn the word of God, which they're apparently supposed to be following. But how are they supposed to follow it when they can't read it? Yeah, it's <laughs> it's such a total regression. Because if you think about it, right, the whole idea of the word of God, you know, as proposed by the bible uh, being available to in quotes the common man it came about like with lutheranism <laughs> yeah ages ago <laughs> i mean seriously are we going back to the medieval <laughs> right <laughs> it honestly feels like it in the way that they conduct themselves and um, so she decided to approach the gilead council to ask them to allow women to learn and read the bible just the bible she didn't ask to like read anything else and so she got her finger cut off for her efforts oh well the council was like <laughs> they were like cool 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 uh, good good story and then they like told her to leave and then she was dragged away by gardens and got her fingers chopped off 
Amazing that she thought that was going to work, to be honest. She's, she's surprisingly naive. <laughs> she really didn't even think that like, her husband would let that happen. But he was just like, uh, thank God. Like, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> so yeah, that's why she decided to get her daughter out of there. Yeah, I mean, I'm so glad that finally that's going to happen. I did tell you um, a few nights ago my prediction for the end of Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, yeah, what was it again? But um, yeah, I decided to tell her on the podcast. I personally think... That at some point, uh, the news is going to be leaked that it's actually the commanders that are sterile in Gilead and not the wives. Mm-hmm. And that this is really going to fracture the entire social system. The wives are going to uh, unite with handmaids and possibly even with Martha's and things like that to overthrow the system. Because they'll be so angry that they've been kind of duped and shamed all this time mm. and that uh, yeah they will effectively crush the uh, you know much smaller population of men <laughs> yeah i think that'd be a great way for it to end they would have to get assistance from like rogue guardians in terms of firepower because otherwise they don't have much in the way that being said they have a bunch of chemists working with them who are making bombs yeah you know i just feel <laughs> that in some cases sheer numbers can overwhelm uh, an army even a well-armed army and um they really have to just raid a few arsenals, mm. grab some uh, assault rifles, and there we go. I mean, I'm pretty sure they can take the, take it off from the heads, you know, like get all the main leaders killed. Yeah, I was about to say. Because I mean, most of these people are just following orders. Yeah, I mean, if each wife individually takes it upon herself to, you know, subtly kill (laughs) her her husband, that'll actually dismantle the entire, like, upper tier of of command. All right, well, uh, that's probably enough for (laughs) Handmaid's Tale. You know, if you don't enjoy this show, I'm so sorry because. uh, You're probably just like, oh boy. (laughs) Like, the last five minutes of your life are just a deep black hole. Um, so let's get on to the stories. We have special yeah. father-themed stories today, so mm-hmm. excited about that. Uh, whose turn is it? It's yours. It's my turn. Alright, so I'm going to talk about a myth from the Yoruba people of Nigeria um, called Ogbe Baba Akinyalure. Uh, what? Say it again. <laughs> Ogbe Baba Akinyalure. Okay. Okay. So a little bit of history. Well, not a little bit. There's actually quite a bit I have on the Yoruba people. So, fascinatingly enough, um, evidence of human existence in the area now known as Nigeria dates to about 40,000 years ago. That's about 38,000 BC, which kind of just, I'm not entirely sure how to think about that. (laughs) That's way too long ago. I Um, feel like I told you that in the Biogena episode. Probably. (laughs) I think I remember history. (laughs) I was actually just saying the other day, that was like, when people told me about dates, I'm just like... <laughs> I never remember them. Uh, in case you're wondering, Bayajida, the hero that founded one of the Nigerian clans, in episode three, Harry Fairies Give Us Fire. <laughs> That's a great name. Um, so, the Yoruba people themselves are an ethnic group which originate largely from West Africa, specifically Nigeria, Benin, Togo, and parts of Ghana. Um, they're actually one of the largest ethnic groups in Africa. So, the history of the Yoruba people begin with the Ile Ife. I hope I'm saying that right, kingdom, which was established by Odudua, a divine king of the Yoruba people. The myth actually goes that Olodumare, king of heaven, ordered another divine being called Obatala to go down to Ife and establish a kingdom there. However, Obatala was distracted along the way and became drunk on palm wine. <laughs> so Odudua then took over the mission and became the father of the Yoruba people. 
<laughs> wow, dude, you had one job. <laughs> he was like, but what if we get wasted? <laughs> it is believed, however, by most scholars that Oduduwa and Abatada were actually real people, normal humans, that were then given divine status as to accord some sort of significance, importance to the founding of the kingdom. Come through, Moses! <laughs> actually, so this is another throwback to the Bayajida episode. Told you. Um, due to later Islamic influences, it was also thought that Oduduwa, like the Bayajida legend, was said to be an eastern prince whose people were driven out of their kingdom in Mecca to present-day southwestern Nigeria. Oh, okay. <laughs> so the Ile-Efe kingdom was a prosperous economical hub, but from the 15th century began to decline as the kingdoms of Benin and Oyo began to rise. I think I mentioned both of those relatively recently. Yeah. By the 1800s, Ile-Efe kingdom was basically destroyed. Ouch. So the Oyo empire was one of the younger kingdoms in Yoruba history, but is considered to have been the strongest. It was said to have been founded by Oran Mian, one of the youngest grandsons of Odudua, so they're also claiming divine heritage. By the 18th century, the capital city of the kingdom, uh, Katunga, was the rich and powerful centre of the empire, and they conquered armies belonging to the Ashanti people, as well as armies in Benin. Uh, the Oyo Empire also began trading with European merchants, and during the 18th and 19th century, they participated in the slave trade, both locally and internationally. So. They not only gave slaves to Europeans, they also employed slaves in their area. This is the Ashanti. Uh, no, no, the Oyo Empire. Oh, right, okay. So they used them for labor um, locally as well. Mm -hmm. By the 19th century, the kingdom began to collapse, most likely from civil war. And by 1835, the capital of the empire was deserted. Then by 1892, the British had successfully attacked the Yoruba people and settled in, La settled in Lagos, the main city in Nigeria. And Nigeria was formally colonized in 1901. By 1916, Nigeria gained independence, but has been embroiled in civil wars and political coups since then, which actually resulted in four consecutive republics of Nigeria. Interesting. They're in the Fourth Republic right now. Uh, yeah, so that's just a little bit of history. The myth itself is really short. It goes that Ogbe was a warrior renowned for his great skill in combat. Only the strongest warriors faced him on the battlegrounds. Due to his reputation, Ogbe had many wives and numerous children, but his favourite among them was his son, Akinyalure. Ogbe doted on the boy and was so fond of him that he renamed himself Ogbe Baba Akinyalure, Ogbe, father of Akinyalure. Which I thought was really cute because usually you're named after your parents. Yeah, actually my <laughs> first thought was like, sucks to be the other kids, but... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I feel like at this point they were just like, oh yeah, there's dad's favorite son. <laughs> <laughs> so for a while, Ogbe and the other warriors were at peace. They spent many days relaxing with their families and many nights drinking palm wine, like someone else we know. But it didn't last long. A messenger soon arrived with news that an army was on its way to invade. The warriors instantly sprung into action, organizing themselves and preparing for battle. Ogbe as well, but he was interrupted by his son. Akinyalure asked him to allow him to join in the battle, and although Ogbe was reluctant, he eventually agreed, as long as his son stayed by his side at all times. As the battle progressed, however, Ogbe lost sight of his son in the dust and bloody heat of battle. He could not find him no matter how much he searched, and the constant um, waves of enemies didn't allow him to search for him. Eventually the enemy fled, and Ogbe found his son. Akinyalure's dead body lay before him. Oh, man. Sorry, this is a sad story. 
Hogwe was beside himself with grief and refused to return home with the other warriors. He was overcome with guilt for having let his son die because, you know, he said he was allowed to come on to battle as long as he stayed with him. Mm-hmm. So he felt like he let him down. He stood there in that one spot on the battleground for so long that he eventually transformed into an Oroko tree and sacrifices are still made at the foot of a Oroko tree to honour Ogbe's memory and his eternal devotion to his son. Oh, he stood so long he turned into a tree? Mm-hmm. Well, oh. That happens. <laughs> That's a thing that could happen. Yeah, yeah you should try it sometime. <laughs> you just eventually become, you know, the roots. The I mean, roots I'm sorry. Surround your feet. I shouldn't laugh. It's very sad. <laughs> he just stood there and... He stood there so long. ...mourned his son and forgot that he's also a dad of other kids that need their father. <laughs> <laughs> They'll go on without me. <laughs> but I can't go on without a kid Yeah, his other children will probably be like, really? <laughs> cool, cool, cool. And he just left like without saying who's going to be, you know, the next head of the family. <laughs> I guess they can kill each other off and then find out. Or maybe their wives are just going to take over. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that was a short but kind of sad uh, story. Uh, my sources were A History of the Yoruba People by, I'm going to attempt to say this name, Stephen Adebanji Akintoye, who is a Nigerian-born academic, historian, and writer, and is actually one of the current leading scholars on the history of the Yoruba people. Hmm. African Mythology, A to Z by Patricia Ann Lynch and Jeremy Roberts, and of course Wikipedia. Oh, okay. Sad story. Very yeah. um, poignant. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> not exactly the greatest story for Father's Day. <laughs> The moral is, if you lose a child, just sort of become a tree. (laughs) It's interesting, this idea of people transforming into trees pops up a lot in Greek mythology as well. I was actually just thinking about that when I was researching it, that um, I think I told you about this this couple that loved each other so much that they wanted to die together, Mm. and so the gods turned them both into trees. Yes, I remember that story. Yeah, that was (laughs) kind of, I don't know. (laughs) sentimental fools i think it's the whole thing of returning to nature i suppose you return to nature when you die ho <laughs> i mean they yeah <laughs> they did die <laughs> it's just that the return to nature was much faster than usual <laughs> apologies for all the cars going by this is kind of a popular time of the afternoon for um traffic <laughs> Okay, well, thanks. That was, um, yeah, that was interesting. <laughs> like, that was so sad. <laughs> Put me in a grim mood. <laughs> I hope you have something happier. Um, not necessarily happy, <laughs> but more adventurous, perhaps. Okay. We're going to go to our promo break, and then I'm going to tell you a story from the Nyanga people of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Awesome. Today's promo shout-out goes out to a brilliant podcast called Terminal 234. Terminal 234 is a podcast that connects pop culture musing with relevant life synchronicities. Every episode features a no-frills, stimulated conversation which juxtaposes opposite sex, first-generation Nigerian-Americans against the backdrop of current events. We discuss music, politics, media, trends, current events, and the world at large from a distinctive perspective. Terminal 234 is driven to shed light on the marginalized perspectives emanating from the African diaspora. So check that out on Apple Podcasts, on Radio Public, and pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts. So those who listened to last week's episode, Beware of the Rainforest Spirits, will remember my really brief introduction to the Democratic Republic of Congo and a specific ethnic group called the Mongo. Today, I'm not straying far geographically speaking, 
In fact, we're traveling just a little east to the tip of the East African Rift Valley to bring you the Mundo Epic. That's, uh, <laughs> sorry, I think I said that kind of weirdly. It's Mundo. <laughs> Mundo. Kind of, but more like Mundo. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, wait, wait. Mundo. Mundo. Mm. Oh, okay. <laughs> right, so, finally got that right. <laughs> Now, uh, this story is the national Karisi of the Nyanga people. A Karisi is a type of epic poem told in a spoken or performance style by the Nyanga, a tribe of people native to the Kivu region of DRC, and, if I'm not much mistaken, around 100,000 strong in number. I love epic poems. Yeah, I thought that uh, as a Homer <laughs> researcher you would appreciate this. And... Uh, you know, not often we see an epic poem coming out of uh, Africa, so that's quite interesting. Yeah, definitely. So uh, <laughs> I'm not going to read the entire window <laughs> epic, uh, because as you might imagine, it is epically long. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to pick out the parts that relate to his father. Okay. So the uh, Mundo epic is probably the most well-known example of a karisi, and it is one of those designed to be performed before an audience. The epic is performed mostly by one storyteller who accompanies his tale with a calabash rattle, bells, and other noisemaker instruments or adornments. The storyteller incorporates dance into his tale, as well as acts out the story, sometimes throwing in a little of his own personal mythology or experience. The audience is integral to the performance, since uh, audience members are encouraged to sing along, provide praise and applause, and sometimes like a kind of call and response thing. Okay, so that's quite interactive. Yeah, which kind of fits with a, a lot of performance art mm. in, in uh, various African cultures. So, um, this is a little bit of a disclaimer okay. before we start. If you were planning on playing this episode to your dad as a token of appreciation, you might want to reconsider since the father in this tale is actually a grade A dick. Oh no. <laughs> so I guess... Happy stick it to your stupid ass Father's Day. <laughs> this is this is a story for how fathers should not behave. Yeah, yeah. This is for all those on Father's Day who are just like, fuck you, man. <laughs> Thanks for never being there for me. <laughs> anyway, our story begins with the birth of our hero Mwindo. Now at this time a chief named Shem Window rules over the Tubondo village. And from the beginning, it's clear that he is ten kinds of fucking psycho. <laughs> because he just straight up decrees that none of his seven wives should bear him anything but daughters, or else suffer the execution of both mother and son. And who the fuck's fault is that? <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. I don't know if they had a god of genetic engineering uh, in Tubondo, <laughs> because otherwise this man's knowledge of reproductive <laughs> biology really disturbs me. I mean... He understands that they're not crocodiles, right? Like, you can't just regulate the temperature of the eggs and then produce the gender that you want. <laughs> it's just like, woohoo, voila, a baby girl. <laughs> now, the reason Shimwindo didn't want a boy is that by tradition, uh, in the negotiation of a marriage, the man's family, or the, the prospective husband's family, pays the bride price to... Um, oh, so he wanted all the money. Right. Gotcha. Whereas so, you don't want to pay the money. Exactly. Okay. So in South Africa, that's actually um, commonly known as lobola. And it's often paid in terms of uh, cattle or crops or land, you know, something that constitutes wealth. Mm. So uh, Shemwindo's desire for daughters was really a kind of self-enrichment scheme, kind of a get-rich-quick in nine months and, like, 18 years. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously this whole strategy of cooking up baby girls was not going to last long. 
and sure enough, one of Shimwindo's wives, named Nyamwindo, incidentally, unlucky wife number seven, so do with that information okay, what you will, okay. she gave birth to a baby son named Mwindo. And then she dressed him up as a girl and said it was a girl. Ah, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> now, even Nyamwindo's pregnancy was strange. While all six of the chief's other wives fell pregnant at, like, exactly the same time, and gave birth at the same time. Oh, this guy's timing. <laughs> Nyamwindo's pregnancy was more drawn out, and in the meantime, she found that her household chores were mysteriously getting done without her intervention. Interesting. So, spoiler alert, this was not due to her caring and doting husband. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually done by her super-powered unborn son. Wait, what? Yeah, he's, I, he's doing chores from the womb. Yeah, in utero. <laughs> I want a child like that. <laughs> Even weirder, when Mwindo finally popped out, he decided to forego the usual birth canal hmm? and instead emerged from his mother's middle finger. What the? Which, <laughs> which was a huge fuck you to Exactly. <laughs> it's so symbolic. <laughs> Mwindo also brought with him from the depths of Nyamwindo's apparently truly spacious uterus mm-hmm. a conga scepter, an azde axe, and a bag containing a rope gifted by the fortune goddess Kahonbo. Okay, when did those get in there? Uh, you know, <laughs> apparently his dad has got some funky sperm. Conception was wild, right? <laughs> it's kind of like Theseus getting yes from the god, but in the womb. Mm. <laughs> So, unfortunately, none of this was particularly inconspicuous, as you can imagine, mm. so Shimwindo quickly got wind of this son, and he embarks on a full-on murder escapade. Oh, God. He initially throws seven spears at this kid, <laughs> who expertly deflects them with his conga scepter. Wait, a, a newborn? Hmm? The newborn child? Yeah, yeah, the newborn kid. <laughs> okay, cool, cool. Then, Shimwindo tries to bury his own son alive, but Mwindo just climbs out of the grave during the night. <laughs> and eventually, Shimwindo gets really creative, and he seals his kid in a drum, then yeets him into a river. Okay. Like, Moses style, but like, die, die. <laughs> Instead of, I hope you go safely to a better place. <laughs> okay. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, this kid is, like, pulling some Harry Potter shit, because apparently he's impossible to fucking kill. <laughs> Yay. Dads. <laughs> Deciding that home sweet home was really not that sweet, Mundo floated off to his paternal aunt in Yangura. And along the way, he had all sorts of adventures, but like, I'm fast forwarding through that and I'm gonna go to Mundo's eventual return to Tobondo. And it's like he had adventures, still a toddler. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, he, he essentially grew up on the river because the next time we see him, he's like a man or something. <laughs> he just like spends the time wrestling some animals. <laughs> he's two years old. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, if you're interested in those adventures, you should definitely look it up on Wikipedia. It's quite a wild ride. But I mean, this guy's whole life is a wild ride. So. <laughs> yeah. So his aunt equips him with a slew of warriors and persuades Mwindo to visit the home of her brothers, the Baniana, a race of bat gods. Okay, this is getting trippy. Yes, I did say bat gods. (laughs) (laughs) The Baniana either forge him full body armor or they cut him into pieces and then reforge him as a man of iron. What now? Yeah, I've heard it both ways, so literally just pick the one that you find more funky. <laughs> ah, definitely the one where he gets cut up. That sounds fun. Yeah, that's my favorite as well. Mm-hmm. Mwindo's uncles also join him in the journey back to Tubondo, presumably to help whop his dad's ass. <laughs> Why does nobody else like I mean, like, these are his siblings, right? <laughs> I didn't know that he's an asshole. <laughs> so now it turns out the 
the conga scepter is good for something other than deflecting spears since Mundo also uses it to magically conjure food for his entire army. Cool. He and his aunt then kick back while his uncles and warrior bros go on to make war against Shimwindo. Oh, nice. <laughs> Unfortunately, Shimwindo pretty much pones Mundo's army, and only one of his uncles escapes to tell Mundo and Inyangura the news. Wow, useless. Mundo then decides to stroll into the village himself and call upon the help of the lightning god Inkuba. Inkuba obliges spectacularly by sending down seven lightning bolts, there's that number again, mm. that uh, obliterates the entire village. You mean all the people? Yeah, it uh, literally kills everyone. Do we want that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, at this point when I read this, I was like, my dude, did you at least get your mother out of the village <laughs> before you raised it to the ground? I was like, why couldn't they just be more specific and direct the seven lightning bolts onto his father? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. His father and his army. I mean, someone else had to suffer. Like, what about his uh, six half sisters? I mean, I guess he gets zero craps. I mean, they didn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, to make matters worse, Shimundo is the only person who doesn't die. He actually escapes by uprooting a kokota plant and jumps into the resulting hole, which also casually becomes an entrance to the underworld, where the other Nyanga gods reside. Cool, cool, cool. He just rips up a whole tree and then just, just like goes in. Well, it's a plant. I'm not sure it was actually oh. a tree. Oh, I see. But it's more interesting to me that it's a portal to the underworld by complete mm. coincidence. <laughs> was he just hiding it there? Did he like plant this thing over it? He probably knew about it, yeah. Maybe he was planning on like finally eating his son in there. Yeah, why didn't he just leave with that? <laughs> anyway, Mundo jumps after his dad, you know, just following an old pop's footstep, and lands in the mighty jungles of the underworld, Ooh. which, according to the Nyanga, is made up of several caverns and luscious forests and things like that. Sounds nice. He journeys to the hut of Kahindo, the daughter of the god of the dead, uh -huh. and she's like, what's up, handsome? Want to help me wash the sores from my bacterial infection in return for the skinny on my dad? Excuse me, what? <laughs> That was less romantic than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> Not what you were expecting. Mm -mm. Yeah, she has this uh, infection called yours, which is some kind of spirochete bacterial infection. Sexy. Shame. I mean, <laughs> she just has sores all no, over no, her yeah. back. That seems rough for a daughter of a god. Yeah, truly. So anyway, Mundo's totally down at the plan. So Kahindo tells him not to accept food or drink from Muisa, her father, or risk being exiled to the underworld forever. Okay. Persephone so. style. Right, right. In return, Mwindo washes Kahindo's sores and she feels much better in the morning. No, oh, that's nice. Now, Muisa admits that he is sheltering Shimwindo and he offers to give the guy up if Mwindo can complete a task. Okay. Which, as you might predict, is going to be something ridiculously difficult or impossible. Excellent. So this task happens to be one of agricultural proportions. Okay, alright. He tells Mwindo that in order to get his father, he has to plant and harvest an entire banana forest within 24 hours. So about the trees today. Mundo <laughs> <laughs> uses his powers to make the banana forest grow, but he's seen by a servant of Muisa, and then Muisa tries to foil Mundo by strangling him with a cowrie shell bell. Okay. Belt. I thought, Sorry, a cowrie shell belt. <laughs> I thought maybe he was just going to, like, I don't know, slowly poison the trees, but sure, let's go straight to strangulation. Strangulation? Strangulation. Strangulation. <laughs> But Mwindo smacks him over the head with his handy conga scepter, which is really, <laughs> it's good for everything. I mean, he has like two other gifts and never uses them. <laughs> I've forgotten what those were. The axe and the rope. Oh. After this, Muisa has the gall to ask him to complete yet another task in order to get his dad. 
this time, he needs him to obtain a bucket of honey from Luisa's honey tree. Okay. Now, keep in mind that all this time, Window has been washing Kahindo's uh, sores nightly, and she's improving in leaps and bounds. Okay, okay, okay. Mwindo drives off the bees with smoke, but finds the honey tree petrified. Luckily, he calls again on his pal Nkuba the lightning god, who strikes the tree with one of his handy bolts. I wonder why this lightning god is so fond of, fond of him. Yeah, Nkuba is like so tight with Mwindo. <laughs> Once again, Mwindo is busted by a servant, and Mwisa tries his old kill him with a cowrie belt technique. Why doesn't he just tie up the servants? <laughs> he has rope. <laughs> Yet again, Mwindo throws him over and then presents the death god with the honey. Mm-hmm. This time, Wiza just flat out refuses to hand over Shinwindo since the chief has actually escaped back to the living <laughs> world through another tunnel. What the? This whole time? Exactly. Little shit. So, understandably, Mwindo just loses his shit at this point <laughs> and he beats Mwisa literally flat, like into a pancake. And he beat the god of death. Yep. You, you can do that now. <laughs> you can do it. Cool, cool. Then he follows his dad out of the underworld yet again. Hey. Mwindo tracks his dad to a cave, which is blocked by an enormous aardvark named Ntumba. Mm. Now, an aardvark is uh, basically an anteater, yeah. I think. So, Mwindo tries to get Ntumba to step aside, but after the aardvark refuses, he gets Nkuba, his handy <laughs> pal, his man in the van, <laughs> once again to blow up the cave. And this reveals Shimwindo hiding behind the aardvark. <laughs> Sorry. And it's like, grown-ass man. <laughs> like, check me, aardvark. <laughs> Shimwindo runs off yet again. Oh my god, why? And as punishment, Mwinda curses Ntuba with elephantitis. Okay, you know what, though? That's just mean. So, yeah. I mean, um, I know he's protecting the father and he shouldn't be, but I mean, come on. So elephantitis, as you probably already know, it's a very painful swelling of limbs. Mm. Now, Mwinda then, Mwinda, Mwindo, <laughs> then follows his dad to the Great Rift Valley, where Shimwindo has somehow escaped into the sky. Okay, but he's gonna be screwed because of lightning guy, right? No, actually, this is the one time Kuba actually isn't needed. <laughs> okay. So, what happens is that Mwindo sees some children of the sky god playing nearby, and asks them for help, which they agree to do in exchange for a snack. Because, you know, they're kids. They're like, give me sweeties. <laughs> I mean, I will do a lot of snacks, eh? <laughs> Window brings the kids 12 giant bowls of food, which they quickly gobble up and then stack one upon the other to make a ladder to the sky. How many bowls of food did they eat? There's a lot of kids, okay? <laughs> also, very big bowls. They're giants. Okay. <laughs> Window climbs up to the sky god's village, where he gambles the sky god for his father. Okay. I mean, none of these people just want to give this asshole up. It's really annoying. Yeah, they all want to get something out of him. <laughs> so, initially things go very poorly for Mundo. He gambles away his cattle, his houses, even his own aunt. <laughs> you can't do it. I'm like, she has something to be bargaining yeah, with. How are you going to wager your aunt, ho? Can you imagine what she would do when she found out? <laughs> anyway, finally he actually throws his beloved Congo scepter into the <gasps> pot. No, there's a whole axe and rope. I know, right? <laughs> But this time, he actually starts winning, and in short order, he wins back his conga scepter, his houses, his cattle, etc., etc. His aunt. <laughs> his aunt. And also his father. Plus, to sweeten the pot, he actually wins the sky god's whole village. Whoa, okay. Then Shimwindo is given to Mwindo in shackles. Finally. <laughs> 
And in response, Mundo returns the Sky God's village to him. Okay, neat, neat. And I think this is actually where Mundo really shows that he is a true hero, because he actually retraces his steps along his whole journey. And he uh, cures Ntumba of elephantitis. He returns Moisa to his regular non-flat shape. Oh, oh, so he stayed a pancake and just bounced back? No, no. I can't imagine we'd bounce back after a nope. while. Beaten flat. Okay. <laughs> and he even refuses the gift of Kahindo's hand in marriage, choosing instead to marry a human maiden. So he's like, no, man, your daughter is not a prize to be given. Yeah, I mean, also, he probably didn't want to live in the underworld. That and uh, he might have been really sick at this point of washing those sores. <laughs> <laughs> Although I assume she was actually um, healthy now at this point. Mm. Mwendo restores Tubondo to its former glory and becomes its benign and very wise ruler. Mm-hmm. He has his father sit at his left side so that he may watch his son rule better than he ever did for the Ooh, rest of his days. So passive aggressive. Right? <laughs> I mean, he doesn't kill his dad or anything. He's just like, here, just sit here and watch what a proper chief does. Sure. And that is the window epic of the Nyanga people. Wow, that was good. That really was a whole epic tale. Yeah, and you know, I've actually, well, not really left out detail, but summarized things so much because there's so many things that Mwindo actually goes through. Yeah. And uh, I think it would be so interesting to watch someone actually acting out this entire epic. That's true, yeah. I mean... I wouldn't understand the language, so that would be an issue. But I feel like knowing the story, you'd probably be able to follow along mm-hmm. fairly well. Um, interestingly, my source today was only Wikipedia. It had a lot of information. Wow, come yeah. through Wiki. For the original source, of course, you can go to the page on the Window Epic. Mm. And uh, perhaps Disney Plus will soon have a series on this epic. <laughs> yeah, please, Disney, animate African tales. Yeah, get on that. Uh, and, you know, not the Lion King, <laughs> not things that misrepresent both, you know, animal social dynamics <laughs> and the country in general. <laughs> I mean, we don't even know which country the Lion King is set in. <laughs> it, it's, you know, Pride Rock. I mean, a lot of the names are in Swahili and there's the Rift Valley, so I guess it's Kenya or Tanzania. Yeah, it's a bit vague. <laughs> yeah. But anyway. That was a great uh, tale. Yeah, that's a story of, uh, you know, Mundo's dickish father. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, as usual, if you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe to us, leave us a review on Podchaser or Apple Podcasts, depending on what your favorite platform is. And follow us on Twitter, LegendaryPod1, and on Instagram at LegendaryPod. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) And until then... Oh, wait, before Back, and before we sign out, <laughs> I just wanted to let you guys know that we have some really exciting collaborations coming up. Mm-hmm. We're going to have interviews. We're going to have other South African podcasts on the show. So uh, look out for that. I'm really excited about it. And we can't wait to bring you more content. Yeah, you'll see all the updates on social media. Also, keep an eye on our YouTube channel. We're going to have new content coming out soon. Oh, yeah. Excited for that. <laughs> Absolutely. Now you can sign off. Okay? <laughs> I mean, usually it's your thing, so go for it. <laughs> so, until next time, stay safe, stay sexy, and stay legendary. Bye.